Please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, we pick up in our series through the Gospel of Luke this morning. We will be looking at verses 10 through 17. The title of our sermon this morning is, They All Ate and Were Satisfied. Our key words for our worshipers in training are loaves, provision, and apostles. Now, ever since Luke chapter 4, we've seen Jesus' ministry taking place in the region of Galilee. And we've, we've witnessed his incredible power and authority right alongside his great compassion for the people he was daily ministering to. At this point in the gospel account, I think it's, it's possible for us to have a tendency to read another passage about Jesus' Galilean ministry and say, yeah, we've read all of this before. Another miracle. Got it. Jesus did a lot of miracles, and maybe our tendency is just to sort of want to move on. And I think we do that as we read the Bible sometimes, because we settle into just seeing words on the page instead of really identifying with the world that Jesus was in. Now, I've tried with each of Jesus' miracles to, to help us imagine what it was like. What it would be like to be considered unclean and cast out of our community, unable to interact with other people. What it would be like to have a, a horrible physical ailment without the medical care that all of us have, have grown so accustomed to. We've thought about what it might be like as a widowed mother to be at the funeral procession of her son. Or to be a desperate father whose young daughter was on her deathbed. Remember, we've seen people who were, who were being tormented by demons that inhabited their, their bodies, causing them to do horrendous acts, inciting fear in everyone who was ever around them. We've considered these people and their physical conditions and also the loneliness and the depression that was sure to come with much of their experience. And through each of these experiences, we've seen people who also showed glimmers of faith and hope. Remember the friends who, who desperately lowered the paralyzed man through the roof down to Jesus. The centurion who sent men to have Jesus grant healing to his servant. Jairus seeking Jesus' healing hand for his dying daughter. And the woman with the issue of blood who reached out to touch Jesus' garment that she might be healed. We've also seen people who have been enraged at Jesus' work, particularly when it came to the work of, of casting out demons. He incensed the Pharisees as he cast out a demon from a man in the synagogue. And the people in the land of the Gerasenes, when the man possessed by thousands of demons was made well, and the demons were cast into the pigs who jumped off into their death in the waters, the great abyss. No doubt, through all of this, we've seen a tremendous range of emotion and reaction and faith and even faithlessness from people who encountered Jesus. Thousands upon thousands of people in Galilee over this year of his ministry in their land had seen and heard many incredible Amazing things. 
to include, as we looked at last week, Jesus giving much of that same power and same authority to his apostles as he sent them out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the multitudes. But most importantly, and I hope we've got this lodged into our brains by now, most importantly, we've seen that Jesus has emphatically shown the very thing that he has in different ways proclaimed, whether he was understood or not, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, very God of very God in the flesh. Now, remember, Jesus sort of kicked all of this off just prior to getting into the heart of Galilee by preaching a very controversial sermon in his home synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, where he quoted from the prophet Isaiah. If you recall, he opened the scroll to the prophet and he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember, we get this picture that everyone was just sitting there listening to Jesus, silent, staring back at him as he spoke. And then he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this text is about me. So they quickly formed a committee and sought to throw him over the side of a cliff. He made a lot of friends that day. (laughs) But from this point forward, as we have seen, Jesus has proven over and over and over and over again that he indeed is who the prophets said he would be. With all the power, with all the authority, he has inaugurated the kingdom of God and he has proven it through many miraculous works among the people of Galilee. And as time went by, the crowds grew larger and larger and larger until we saw briefly at the end of last week, even now, Herod the Tetrarch was hearing of these amazing things and he wondered exactly who Jesus was and what he should think about him. I think it's safe to say that Herod believed Jesus more than the Jewish people who were surrounding him. He was fearful of what Jesus would become because he heard the language of a new king and a new kingdom. So you see, the miracles of Jesus are tremendously significant and help us to understand who Jesus really is and what Jesus was really accomplishing. This morning, we will look at the single largest miracle that Jesus performed throughout his ministry and the only of Jesus's miracles to appear in all four gospel accounts. Now, no doubt, most of us are very, very familiar with this account in Scripture, but I hope that God will help us to look at this text with fresh eyes this morning that we may gain a greater love for Christ, that we might be all the more in awe of his greatness and his glory. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 9 in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those 
who had need of healing. Now, when the disciples returned from the mission that Christ had sent them out on that we looked at last week, he recognizes their need for rest. In Mark's account of the same event, we read more details. Mark chapter 6 and verse 31 says, he, sent, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Surely they were exhausted. They were being peopled to death by all who had experienced the amazing work, not only of Jesus now, but also of the 12 apostles, the work that Jesus had sent them out to do with his power and his authority. The press was so great at this point, they didn't even have time to sit down and have a granola bar and a Coke. Now, surely the apostles were were full of excitement, telling Jesus of all their stories, of all that they had just done. Jesus, it was amazing. A man was blind and I touched him and he could see. And another, perhaps, a young boy had a demon and I cast it out of the boy and he was restored to his right mind and everyone around him rejoiced. And on and on and on. It, It makes me think of a child when they have something so wonderful and so exciting to say, and they want to tell mom and dad all of the amazing details, and they're talking so fast they can hardly get it all out. What a wonderful time for the apostles. But no doubt it was also very draining on the apostles. They needed some time for themselves, so Jesus decided it was best to take a retreat to the north side of the lake. You know, this is a great reminder for those of us who so often work without rest. It's necessary. It's a gift from God. Psalm 127 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go to go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. We all need time to let our bodies relax, to let our minds be refreshed. And so often we've seen already in Jesus' ministry with him, how he's gone off to desolate places to pray, most certainly to meditate on the word of God. And now he's prescribing this very same thing for his apostles, or so they think. They had quite a journey. Certainly they needed rest. You know, sometimes I think about how I myself actually spend a lot of alone time each day. As much As pastoral ministry is about being with God's people, it's very much also about a lot of time spent alone, in solitude, thinking, studying, praying, preparing. And if that's not what's done each day, then nobody benefits. There's something very important about solitude for all of us. I read an article recently by a man whose job it is. I don't know how he got this job, but it's a great job. All he does is reads books and reviews them for a major newspaper. That's his job. 
But in this article, he admitted that he found it more and more difficult each and every year for him to concentrate and to stay focused on doing his job because there are so many distractions. And because he found the more he let into his life in terms of hurried interactions and short sound bites and summarized news clips, the less patience he had for lengthy amounts of time in quiet thinking, processing, reading, writing. It's all very telling, isn't it? Certainly something for us to consider in our busy lives. Are we spending time in quiet? Are we resting? Are we praying? Are we meditating on the word of God? It's so vital to our spiritual health and growth. And very much what Jesus is showing the disciples their great need to pull away from time to time and to rest. And yet... We see the reaction of the people. Now, there's something very worth considering here, and that is exactly where Bethsaida is in relationship to where Jesus and the apostles are launching from at this point. By boat, they're about four miles away across the lake. By foot, about eight miles. And remember, we're not talking about a speedboat with two motors, maybe a sail and two paddles. On foot, they're not going by some nice walking paths with New Balance shoes on, but dusty, dirty trails in torn-up leather sandals, eight miles. And what do we see in verse 11? The crowds followed. They would do whatever it took in terms of travel to be where Jesus was. The multitudes made The journey, probably calling out for their friends to come along. Literally thousands upon thousands of people began to converge on the apostles' retreat. In fact, Mark records, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. Well, so much for their leadership retreat. It was going to be more like a student ministry camp. Activities from dawn to dusk, completely exhausted by the end of the day. And how fun that is sometimes. But I imagine among the apostles, there was maybe some resentment at this point. They were ready to relax. They were ready to enjoy some unhurried time with Jesus, with one another, to be away from the large crowds and all the distractions. But Jesus responds quite differently than the apostles, doesn't he? Verse 11 tells us that he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. The text suggests that Jesus preached at great length and most assuredly it was the very same thing that he sent the apostles out to do previously. Proclaim the kingdom of God. He proclaimed yet again the sovereign reign of God. He described the magnificence and the importance and the difference of the kingdom of God from the kingdom of man. He calls them to repentance and humility and faith. He invites them to enter into the kingdom of which he was and will be the sovereign king of forever and ever. 
And they kept coming, hundreds and then thousands and then multiple thousands of people. They heard his preaching. They were healed. They were crowding around Jesus. What a scene it must have been. What happens next? Look to verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're going to go buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Now, right here, we get a glimpse of the fact that the apostles, even though they had just gotten back from doing many miraculous and wonderful things throughout the land, they still did not quite get it. It was getting dark. And what was their first inclination? Most assuredly now, they were annoyed that their time of rest and solitude was already ruined by all these people. But their first inclination was to demand from Jesus that the people be sent away. They need a place to sleep. They need food to eat. And the apostles said, remember this, this will be important in a little bit. We are here in a desolate place. The apostles very clearly identified how inadequate still their ideas were about the person and the power of Jesus Christ. For over a year, they've been with Jesus nonstop. They've never once seen him come up short when it came to meeting the needs of people. And yet it never occurs to them that in this instance, he might very well do that same thing again. Or perhaps they didn't care. In many ways, it's a picture of all of us who are Christians from time to time, isn't it? So often our hearts are dulled to the great work of Christ on our behalf, providing for our every need. When finances are tight, when circumstances make us unsure, when our routine is interrupted, when tragedy strikes, so often our first response is not to remember the thousands upon thousands of times when God has provided for us. And not only do we think God in that moment at that time isn't adequate at meeting our needs, we, like the apostles, will even go as far as telling God exactly what we want him to do. And as we grow and as we learn and as we are sanctified by God, we must pray that the sufficiency of Christ and all the promises of God in his word are ever before us that we not despair that we might not worry, that we might not sinfully look at the things of the world to provide for us what only Christ can give. And so I love how Jesus responds to the apostles here. You give them something to eat. Now, it's important for us to grasp just how many people we're talking about here. Luke tells us there were about 5,000 men. Now, it could be that this was just a large group of men, but 
I don't think that's a reasonable estimate. Among those men were most certainly women and children. Now, if most of the men had wives, were close to 10,000 people. And then they have children, and first century family planning didn't quite work the way it does today, if you know what I'm saying. So we're talking a bunch of kids. Conservative estimates are somewhere in the 20,000 range of people. Just imagine it. This isn't like they're gathering for a meal after a worship service with a congregation of 150 people wondering if they're going to run out of fried chicken before they get to the end of the line. This is 20,000 people or more. And I just love how the apostles respond when Jesus tells them to feed them. Um, We have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we're going to go buy food for everybody. So basically, they have two McFish sandwiches. Which, by the way, is not okay. Your taste buds are seriously mangled if you eat a McFish sandwich. You're already at McDonald's. You might as well get something with bacon on it. (laughs) So Jesus is looking at these apostles. And they're looking at all of these people. And they're standing there with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And Jesus says, you feed them. And to suggest that they go buy food for everyone is equally laughable to them, no doubt. Most assuredly, this was a sarcastic statement. In John's gospel, we read Philip's response to Jesus when he says, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for every one of these people to even have one bite. Now, have you ever come to something in the Bible that God very clearly commands of his people? And we stop and say, you know, I just don't think that's going to work. I don't have the resources. I don't have the time. I don't have the desire. It's not happening. It feels impossible. It seems completely and totally impossible. So our response is, I don't know how I can possibly be obedient to this. If we're all honest, we all have those things in Scripture. And that's the very thing we see with the apostles right here. But as you know, Jesus is about to do the largest miracle that they've ever seen. And once again, he will put the apostles in absolute awe of who he is. Alexander McLaren helps us to recognize that this is a way God brings us to Christian maturity. He writes, it is often our God-given duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that he who gives them has laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. The best preparation of his servants for their work is the discovery that their own stores are very small. So Jesus tells the apostles, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now, if you're the party planning coordinator type person, you're looking at this and saying, 20,000 men, women, children in groups of 50. 
It sounds like a logistical nightmare. And we have to think about this in their context. It's not like they're on a big stage giving instructions over the PA system. You've got 12 guys trying to organize these people for what Jesus is about to do next. But I always love how nondescriptive Luke is about these sorts of things. Verse 15, and they did so and had them all sit down. As if it just took a quick announcement and everyone counted off to know what group they were going to be in. I'm not trying to be flippant here, but I want us to recognize the magnitude of what was going on. The population of Effingham County is 52,000 people, if that helps you put this into perspective a little bit. So half of Effingham County. That would be interesting. But did Jesus really intend for the apostles themselves to feed all of these people? Certainly not. As was so often the case, Jesus' intention was to teach. And as he so often did, he put the apostles on the spot, challenging them to respond to the situation that was before them. It was the case, as the Gospel of John records, that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. We recognize the brilliance of Jesus here. He will not only highlight the apostles' inadequacy, but he will also point out to everyone his divine sufficiency. The text displays a very stark contrast between the motivation of Jesus versus the lack of motivation among the apostles. It's so very easy for us to see this massive need all around us like the apostles and ask Jesus to send them away instead of responding like him with compassion, with love, with humility, with selflessness. Charles Spurgeon comments on this passage. He writes, Behold before you, disciples of Christ, this very day, thousands of men and women and children who are hungering for the bread of life. They hunger till they faint. They spend their money for that which is not bread and their labor for that which satisfies not. They fall down famished in your highways, perishing from lack of knowledge. See ye, disciples of Christ, see ye the great need which is before your eyes. Let the vision rise perpetually before your eyes. See your work, great as it is, dispirited as you may be by the great multitude who craves your help. Yet recognize the appeal to your faith. Let the magnitude of the mission drive you the more earnestly to the work instead of deterring you from it. The apostles and us, surrounded by a multitude of need. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. His compassion is the motive that drives all true Christian ministry. Also very clear here is the fact that Jesus is alluding to 2 Kings chapter 4. This is the account of Elisha commanding his servants to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread. And from there we see the miraculous provision of God. The servants in that 
instance, say, how can I set this before a hundred men? But Elisha answers, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Sound familiar? Then he sets it before them, and they are and had some left over, according to the words of the Lord. So the parallel here establishes beyond dispute the great truth that Jesus himself wields the power of Jehovah God. He is the great provider, just as Elisha pointed out. And so let's see what happens. Verse 16, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. It's a stark contrast to see how Jesus performs this miracle and the words of the apostles. All we have is these loaves and fish. Are we supposed to go into town and buy them food? But Jesus, the good provider doesn't look to the lack of means and despair. He looks to heaven and God provides. We are reminded of the great words of the Apostle Paul. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. No wonder that in the end, the heavens will fall down before him and declare, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is Jesus. And Jesus fed the multitudes until they were satisfied. And in the end, there were even leftovers. And the grand point of all of this is the utter sufficiency of Christ for all of our needs in life. The provision of Christ is abundant. And you and I receive far more than we even deserve. Now, very important here, I told you to remember the words of the, of the apostles in verse 12. We are here in a desolate place, is what they told Jesus. In Mark's parallel account, it's literally translated a desert place. Does that bring anything to mind? A multitude of people in the midst of a desert? Of course, we remember the Exodus and Moses is leading the people through the desert and God providing for their every need. This event in Bethsaida is very much the Exodus account in microcosm. Just as the Lord provided manna from heaven for all to eat and be satisfied, now Jesus himself, God in the flesh, provides for all the true Israel, gathered around him as both Lord and host. It was very much about Jesus' words in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see, this story is not about feeding the poor or sharing with our friends. This is about coming to Jesus empty-handed, recognizing our great need, and in him alone finding our full satisfaction that he would relieve all of life's hungers. Yes, of course, we're called here to be compassionate on those who are hungry and lost. Yes, we are rebuked here if we are greedy and unwilling to give for the sake of others. Yes, all of this is reflected in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But all of those things are only true after we have come as hungry sinners to the bread of life, to the Lamb who was slain, and we feed upon Him for forgiveness and eternal life. When we come to Him and believe on His name, that we are saved. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Psalm 34, 8 tells us, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Friends, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you come to Jesus in all of your weariness and all of your worry and need to recognize that he transforms the desert into a place of rest and refreshment and life through the great power of our great God and King? Luke says all ate and were satisfied. And far more was left over than they had at first. No doubt Jesus calls us out of this world and sometimes into the desert with him. But it's there in the desert where he feeds us himself. He satisfies our need. But first, friends, we must recognize our need of him. You and I are sinful, broken people, and the Bible tells us apart from Christ, we are dead enemies of God. We've broken his holy and perfect law, committing cosmic treason against our very own creator. And he would be just in condemning each and every one of us to hell forever, right now. And yet in his great mercy, he has offered his son, the bread of life, that we might live. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life that we could not live. And he died a sinner's death that we deserve. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. My sins placed on and punished in Christ, his righteousness imputed to me that I might live in the love and provision of God forever and ever. If you remain an enemy of God in your trespasses and sin, your only hope in life comes through repenting of sin, believing on the holy sufficient bread of life, Jesus Christ. Because for now you labor for food that does not satisfy. 
you long for drink that does not well up to eternal life. Does this great miracle not show us all that we long for is in Jesus? Is it not obvious that this is a perishing world, a desolate place with no lasting food or other provisions? Do not go hungry. Why should you perish? Come to him. Believe on him. Cover your sins with the blood of the lamb and you will be saved. He will feed you and he will lead you to eternal life. And you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ may it be said of us day by day, hour by hour, that we are a people who so clearly recognize the great provision of Christ in our lives that we have eaten, we have been satisfied to overflowing. No matter our circumstances, no matter the difficulties, no matter the trials that lie ahead, Jesus is enough. He's enough. All that God provides, even when it seems impossible, is far more than enough. Trust him. Follow him. Obey him. And the call from our scriptures this morning is that we would all rest and be satisfied in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the bread of life. A bread that does not rot, it does not mold, it does not perish. And as we consume it day in and day out, it never goes away. We rejoice in Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life and the living water that satisfies and refreshes completely and totally forever. Father, we pray for those this morning who are far from Christ that they would hear the call to repentance and that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would rest upon them, raise them up from the dead and give them new life in Jesus Christ, opening their eyes that they might see, their ears that they might hear, their hearts that they might understand. Give them new life in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word, the reminder that when we are in desolate places, that you are there and you are providing and that your very purposes are being worked out in those places and at those times. When we suffer, when we face tragedy, when we despair, when we worry, when we're anxious. In all of these things, Father, I pray that you grow us and you remind us from your word time and time again that you are enough, that you are providing, that you are sustaining, that you are keeping, and that our hope is not here. Lift our eyes to heaven. Help us day by day to taste and see that you, O oh God, are so good and so kind and so giving. Help us to rest in you that we not toil day in and day out for naught. May you be glorified in our lives and may we enjoy Christ so much more. It's in his precious and beautiful name that we pray. Amen.